Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series where I talk with a writer, a podcaster, a scholar, an artist, a filmmaker, or a musician about their favorite story. And joining me today to talk about the 1975 short story, The Werewolf and the Vampire by Ronald Chetwynd Hayes, is Scott Dorward. Scott has been heavily involved in Lovecraftian role-playing games for decades, and I have to say that his resume is longer than my arm, but uh, let me hit a few uh, pertinent highlights here. So Scott has worked on the World War Cthulhu line for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game that I think basically everyone has played, and he's also developed adventures for the Trail of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu Dark role-playing games. And Scott also founded the Milton Keynes Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Writers Workshop, which is very cool. So Scott, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Glenn. I'm delighted to be here. So Scott, in addition to that already impressive gaming resume, you are also involved in gaming podcast. And uh, this is perhaps most Mm. pertinent, most directly uh, important for our audience who, hey, they're all podcast listeners. And uh, I have to say, I am a huge fan of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, which you do with Paul Fricker and Matthew Sanderson. And that is something of a variety show, I I I suppose. How How would you describe The Good Friends of Jackson Elias? With difficulty, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I suppose, a fairly eclectic podcast. We started out primarily talking about the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game because we all write for it. I, Paul was the co-author of uh, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. Uh, Matt was a contributor to that, and I edited it. And so since then, we've worked on a number of projects together, and the podcast sort of span out of that. And we branched out fairly quickly into talking about the other things that influenced our writing. So we spend a lot of time talking about weird fiction, about horror films, about other RPGs, about horror in general. And it's really yeah, just whatever it is that is feeding into our gaming lives and our work. And you've done a, a number of, I think, really cool sorts of, I guess, kind of series within the show. You guys do some focused author studies. So recently you did an episode on The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, which of course is just mm. an absolutely brilliant story. But you guys also have been doing this very cool series where you're looking at uh, some of uh, Lovecraft's creations, or not just Lovecraft, but you know some of the Weird Tales writers. So you guys have done sort of a focused episode on Azathoth. And well, I do highly recommend the, the entire show, but I think for our listeners, I think especially those types of episodes are, are really quite mm. excellent. But uh, it's not the only podcast that you do. You you also are a <laughs> cast member of the actual play RPG podcast, uh, How We Roll. Uh, we're currently, you guys are doing the Pulp Cthulhu campaign, The Two-Headed Serpent. Yes, that's right. I've been running it for them for, oh, a couple of years now. Um, it's... <laughs> It didn't seem like that long a game when we started, but because of <laughs> uh, the, because we only release an hour a week and uh, our recording schedule is fairly intermittent, it's been going on for some time. Uh, but yeah, that's a campaign that I wrote with Matt and Paul. And yeah, it's been delightful running it for how we roll. It's been complete bloody chaos, which is what I like. <laughs> Now, not giving anything away to well, our current listeners, but also maybe especially to your players, what can you say about the setup for that adventure? It was the first campaign that was published for Pop Cthulhu. So we 
took it as an opportunity to try to set a tone. And it draws upon a lot of classic pulp adventure. And there's obviously a very heavy Indiana Jones influence in there, but also a lot of the popular elements of Lovecraft, of Robert E. Howard, of Clark Ashton Smith. And just, yeah, I suppose some of the Republic serials of the 1930s and just, you know, if it's two-fisted action adventure, it's in there. But uh, we're still not done actually talking about your podcasting because you have also been appearing on another actual play podcast. And this one is called Ain't Slayed yes. Nobody, which is uh, also very fun. Yeah, I I uh, sort of drifted into this one because the guy who runs it, uh, who goes by the name Cuppy Cup, asked me to come on and do a one shot with them a while back, and I've just sort of hung around since then. <laughs> I, I'm not involved with the main arc that they do, but they do a lot of streams and one shots and so on. And I've been on an increasing number of those, both as GM and player, and it's been fantastic. Uh, they're a great bunch. Well, lots of options for uh, for people to go check out. I mean, I recommend them all, but uh, but lots of options people can can pick and choose here. <laughs> let's uh, let's move into talking about the story that you've selected, which is the mm-hmm. Werewolf and the Vampire. This is by Ronald Chetwind Hayes. But actually, I think even before we get into talking about the story, I, I want to talk about the writer. And and I guess really what I mean is I want you to talk about the writer because before you suggested <laughs> this story to me, I had never heard of Chetwind Hayes. This is. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about him, because I think he is one of the great forgotten figures of horror fiction. And yeah, he was a big deal. His career primarily ran between the late 50s and it sort of petered out in the early 90s. He came to writing fairly late in life. Uh, He, I think, published his first story in his mid-30s, and it didn't really take off as a career for him until his 40s. And he wrote for about 30, 35 years, uh, during which time he produced a vast amount of work. Uh, he, uh, I think it was something like 200 short stories and, you know, 14 or 15 novels. And he was also an editor and anthologist. And he edited a number of lines for different publishers and, he edited 24 anthologies, and there were 25 collections of his short stories. And for a while, he was one of the most read authors in the UK in terms of the um, in terms of the library system. The the books that were checked out from libraries, you know, he was top of the list for some time. And now, you know, about 20 years after his death, almost no one remembers who he is. And it's it's weird. Yeah. Why do you think that happened? Yeah, I I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, one is he's a very British writer. I don't think his work was ever popular outside the UK. I mean, that's not to say that he was never published outside the UK, but uh, certainly when I lived in the US in the 1980s, I remember coming across his books every now and then in bookshops, but they weren't as ubiquitous as they were in the UK. And also, I think that there's something about the style of fiction that he wrote that has very much fallen out of fashion. That he, we were talking before we recorded uh, about how there's been a resurgence of interest in weird fiction from the, the late 19th and early 20th century. But I think 
that interest drops off very much from maybe the 1940s onwards. And then, you know, obviously there's a lot of very exciting contemporary horror fiction going on. But I think there's this sort of dead zone in our um, consciousness of horror fiction that perhaps lasts from the 1950s through to the 19... Well, I, I was about to say the 1980s, but thanks to Grady Hendrix's paperbacks from hell, there's been an explosion of interest there. So I think it's primarily the 50s through to the 70s, which was the peak period for Chetwin Hayes, is, yeah, it is largely a forgotten era. No, I think that's completely right. I mean, just uh, you know, on the American side of the Atlantic, uh, someone who we talk about on Elder Sign from from time to time, but but actually quite rarely for how important he was in his own day is Robert Block, who of course you know was a, mm. a you know writer with or a correspondent with Lovecraft when he was younger, and you know famously wrote Psycho. But that's kind of all we remember Robert Block for these days. But his resume is probably as long as Chetwin Hayes's, and he's not someone who's fared all that well, actually, when we've uh, done our, our votes to select what we're going to cover on the show. And I think you're absolutely right that there's just this period sort of after the Weird Tales brand of horror, the sort of pulp horror. And then really, I, I guess I would say probably before Stephen King and Clive Barker, right? That sort of, that mm. that window there yeah. is really this, yeah, as you say, this dead zone. And, and that's kind of a shame because there, there actually is some really great stuff there, including this story that we're about to talk about. I was really blown away by how excellent this is. Oh, good, good. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned Robert Block there, because I I did have a think about who I might compare Chetwind Hayes to, and Robert Block was top of the list. I think in a lot of ways, he was kind of the British answer to Robert Block, in that they both had this sort of playful, macabre, slightly humorous style of writing that was both filled with irony, but also had a strange sincerity to it. And yeah, I, I, I mean, just to further compare them, I, one of the things that Chetwin Hayes might be remembered for these days is the film adaptations of his work. And the, uh, the, the first one was from Beyond the Grave, which was made by Amicus, I think around 1970. And this was during the heyday of these anthology series that Amicus used to do. And the other main writer on these Amicus films was Robert Block. And so, yeah, I think there's a very clear comparison to be made between their styles because they both fed in very nicely to this sort of blackly humorous, gentle horror that permeated those Amicus films. Yeah, and there is, of course, always something about comedy, uh, even if it's slight and secondary to to what else is going on in the story. But still, uh, comedy pretty famously just doesn't age all that well, and so it can date yeah. some of these stories. I think that's that's perhaps a problem. But of course, there are just also these issues of of publishing as a, as a business, right? This is an activity that people are doing in order to, uh, you know, pay their mortgages and put food on their table and so on. And uh, these stories just haven't gone out of copyright yet, the way that Lovecraft and, and yeah. Howard and Company, uh, and also Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Mack and sort of all the people we talk about have. And so it's just more expensive to keep these things in print from a, you know, the standpoint of the, the publishers and you know, publishing, of course, already an industry under a lot of stress. Yeah, this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Valancourt books. 
I sing their praises every opportunity I can in that they go out of their way to find books like they recently, well, fairly recently, uh, reprinted uh, Chetwin Hayes' book, The Monster Club, which is actually where this story comes from. And they have done the same with other writers who, again, are sort of, like you say in that sort of period between their stuff being in copyright, but the writers perhaps no longer being alive or not very active. And as a result, you know, their books aren't getting into print, you know, as, as much as they used to be. And so I think they're doing a fantastic service there, preserving the memory of horror fiction, keeping these writers alive to some extent. I have a, a physical copy of that that I got for this episode, and and I'm just looking at it now. And you know, in the back of the book here, there's two pages of uh, what's what's described as more classic horror from Valancourt Books. Uh, it's ten titles mm-hmm. here, and I only recognize one of these names. It's Charles Beaumont, who I, I recognize only as someone yeah. who wrote for the Twilight Zone. I had no idea he ever actually wrote any prose work at all. But, you know, as someone oh, gosh, who's done yes. about a hundred episodes of a, you know, horror fiction podcast, <laughs> to not recognize any of these names is kind of in, incredible for me, uh, both in the sense that it, it seems kind of unbelievable, but also in the sense that uh, it's kind of awesome because I love discovering new writers and here's a great treasure trove for me. Yeah, Valancourt do a fantastic job of curating their line. And I've discovered so many writers from the 20th century uh, through their their publications who I might not have heard of otherwise. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just in awe of the work they do. Maybe on that note, we should transition into the, the story. Yes, by all means. So I will offer up a, uh, well, what will attempt to be a very short synopsis. I always have trouble with the very short part, but uh, I will attempt to be as brief as I can. (laughs) And then we can uh, talk about the story. But I do, especially since as we're talking about this is a story that is really, and a writer who's really off people's radar, I do want to make sure that we we orient listeners here who haven't had a chance to to read the story. So the first things to say about this story uh, really are that it's, it's more or less contemporary to its writing. So this is England in the early 1970s. But also, as we've mentioned already, it's funny. This is a funny story. It's not slapstick humor, but it is meant to strike us as uh, a bit silly <laughs> that we're getting a story about a werewolf and a vampire that really have been plucked out of the realm of the Gothic and dropped solidly into the realm of the contemporary British middle class of the, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And so our story begins with George Hardcastle. He's uh, a nice young man who eh, just happens to be bitten by a werewolf while he's uh, walking in the North Downs. Uh, except, of course, he doesn't know that what bit him was a werewolf. He doesn't really actually know what happened at all. But when he recovers, uh, really maybe what I should say is after his mother has nursed him back to health, George meets an interesting young woman while he's spending a day at Hampton Court Palace, uh, which is a Tudor palace. This was uh, someplace Henry VIII lived, a very cool place I recommend visiting, but this is very much actually a Gothic setting. So we do get some of that here, which I think is part of the uh, the humor because the setting is about to shift. But the deal is that this woman's name is Carola and hey, she's a vampire. And also, she's from a very nice middle-class family of vampires. 
the comedy here is that she knows that George is a werewolf. Now, I think this has to do with scent, with smell, but George has no idea what's happened. Uh, But also Corolla doesn't know that George doesn't know. And so, you know, uh, it's hilarious. You know, it's kind of a comedy of of, of manners we're going to get. So she she takes him home to meet her parents. This is actually where a lot of that comedy of manners happens. You know, there's a sort of dinner scene where uh, George doesn't know how to behave and so on. And we learn here that vampires don't hunt people down in this imaginary world. They get blood without victimizing anyone. Werewolves don't actually have to eat people either. So they can all be perfectly good citizens and more or less live as regular people who hey like to go to museums and stuff. And in the end, George discovers what has happened to him and he adjusts to being a werewolf and he and Corolla get married. And they've rented a little cottage adjacent to a churchyard. And of course, you know, it's a churchyard. So the churchyard is adjacent to a church. And so this is actually a bit dangerous for, uh, well, a pair of monsters, right? But still, it's nice. It's idyllic even. And soon they are expecting a child. And this seems like it's going to be, you know, a really nice life for them, kind of a paradise for them to be here with a baby, raising a family, starting a family. But every paradise must have its snake. And in this case, the snake is the vicar at the church. And his name is Reverend John Cole. And Reverend Cole discovers that these people living in this cottage next to the churchyard are monsters, you know, literal monsters, a vampire and a werewolf. And he determines to kill them, even though they actually have not done anything bad. Uh, They're monstrous only in their identity. They're they're actually never monstrous in their actions, Uh, though they do, you know, now that they're under threat, they do take to using their monstrousness to try to scare him off. They're, They're trying to get him to leave them alone. This does not work, though, and in the end, Reverend Cole enlists the help of a a little kid, a a local boy named Willie Mitchum, and Willie Mitchum knows all about monsters because he's read a lot of comic books, and the two of them, priest and little kid, uh, they team up to gruesomely kill George and Corolla, and really gruesomely, Uh, but I do very much want to emphasize that their baby survives and escapes, so it's, you know, could have been more gruesome than it was, but that's not actually the end of the story. We do get a little coda at the end. Uh, The police, of course, get involved in what appears to them just to be a crazy murder of some new parents by the local vicar and a child, which, you know, is certainly a mind-boggling, crazy thing to have happen, and They put Willie in a foster home, and then the vicar is put into a kind of comfortable rest home for people uh, with, I I guess, what we might describe as some kind of mental illness, severe mental illness. This is how people are reacting to him. But during the course of killing George and Corolla, and, and I don't know, we should probably be clear about that, during the course of murdering them, that's how this is presented to us, he had been bitten by both of them and also by their child. And so the vicar gradually transforms into something indescribable. And one of his caretakers simply dies from fright and the other goes insane. And that is actually how the story ends. A real kind of Lovecraftian ending to this story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, all right, Scott, that was actually quite a big story. In fact, it was bigger than I thought it was going to be. But uh, the first question I've really got is just why did you pick this story? What do you love about this specific story? Yeah, when you asked me to choose a story that had influenced me, I, I knew I really had to go back to Arch Edmund Hayes because uh, he doesn't necessarily influence a lot of my writing directly, but 
on the other hand, he was fairly instrumental in my becoming a horror fan in the first place. And so I have a lot of sentimental attachment to his work. I became interested in horror in the 1970s when I was uh, in my well, about 10, 11, you know, through to my early teens. And Shetland Hayes, as we've mentioned, was a huge figure in horror at the time. And I, I grew up in Hong Kong, and we didn't necessarily get access to as many books as people in the UK or US might have. But I'd hit the jumble sales at church fates and stuff like that to go through the books that people had donated there and picked out every horror anthology and every horror book I could find. And I mean, most of them were things like the Pan Book of Horror Stories series that was very popular at the time. And Chetwin Hayes was a regular contributor to those. And he, as I mentioned before, he also edited a bunch of anthologies. And so I became slowly aware of him through those. And I'm, I'm not sure at what point I read this story, but it's clicked with me immediately because it was the first exposure I'd had as a young horror fan to sort of the human side of monsters. And this and this came out, I suppose, a few years before something like Interview with a Vampire, which was another attempt at sort of humanizing the monster, but in a very gothic, overblown way. This is a very <laughs> down-to-earth way. This is sort of tonally the polar opposite. And I you know, I suppose as well, before then, there'd been things like I Am Legend, which was very much a sort of reverse of the classic vampire hunter myths or vampire hunter stories. But but this was my first exposure, and I just loved it. I, I mean, ever since I was young, I'd always been attracted to stories that had moral grey areas in them, or at least stories that weren't sort of clear-cut good guys versus bad guys. Because even from a young age, there was just something about that that just seemed wrong. And I, you know, those those grey stories or the ones that reversed expectations just for some reason spoke to me. And this one particularly did because all of a sudden, after having watched countless Hammer horror films, this was the monsters from gothic fiction suddenly being presented as the good guys as 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 human as being like us just with the you know with the same concerns and that just sort of made some kind of light bulb go off my head and it's it's certainly something that i've been very keen on exploring and very keen on in fiction ever since then I'm so glad that you you brought up I Am Legend, which is by uh, Richard Matheson, who is also someone who mm -hmm. I think is, you know, Will, despite Will Smith's best efforts, uh, also someone who's been <laughs> largely forgotten and, and maybe remembered mostly actually for also his work uh, on, on screen, like Charles Beaumont was writing for mm -hmm. uh, The Twilight Zone, Robert Block and Richard Matheson were people who wrote for for Star Trek. And uh, but yeah, I Am Legend is really, really very cool in that it flips this around, right? Makes the, the, the monsters 
there that are you know some so kind of like vampires, maybe kind of a cross between what we would think of as a vampire and a zombie, but flips them around and makes them the good guys and the vampire hunter, who of course we're all uh, primed to root for. We've all been trained to root for the vampire hunter, but makes him the bad guy, and that is definitely something that is picked up here uh, that I, and I hadn't really thought about the connection there. Yeah, I mean, with this, I think it's perhaps a little more blatant than in I Am Legend, because in I Am Legend, I guess you don't necessarily have that reversal of expectations until fairly close to the end. But here, it's stated pretty much from the outset, and by the time you've got the Reverend Cole come in as an antagonist, yes, I mean, he is... Perhaps if you step back from the story playing the role that we'd normally see a protagonist in a story like this play, but at the same time, there's never a time in this story where we're rooting for him. Absolutely right. Yeah, I, I Am Legend is told entirely from the perspective of the, the the vampire hunter who we definitely are regarding as the protagonist until the you know rug is kind of pulled out from under us by Matheson at the end to get mm. us to think about you know why we are rooting for someone who's going around killing creatures, right? But yeah, you're right. Chetwin Hayes here yeah. just does that sort of more directly from page one, right? We know that we are involved in the lives of the the titular werewolf and vampire here, but this. Seems Seems like just just to me, just thinking kind of historically, uh, that this is a really interesting move following the Second World War. That just you know, off the top of our heads, we can mm. think of several horror writers who are doing this sort of thing, who are turning around and saying, "Okay, but like, what is it that actually makes the monsters monsters, and what is it that makes the heroes heroes?" And that's something that I think has been explored even more in modern horror fiction, like you know, the last ten years. Uh, I mean, one example is, I, I don't know if you've encountered uh, Ruthanna Emrys. Um, she wrote a, a novella a while back called The Litany of Earth, and then followed it up with a novel called Winter Tide, and there's a, a second one as well, the name of which escapes me. But she basically took uh, The Shadow of Rinsmith, H.P. Lovecraft, and wrote it uh, sort of these contemporary sequels to it from the perspective of the the deep ones who had sort of been rounded up in concentration camps at the end of that story and had their culture wiped out and so on and just presenting them as human and yeah it's it struck me as being very much like the kind of thing Chetwind Hayes had been doing years before but doing it in perhaps a bit more of a serious manner because there was always that playfulness with Chetwind Hayes and I think yeah what what Emrys does is I think yeah much more an examination of you know how Lovecraft's horror depends very much on the other and how this is um, yeah, pathological. And there's a huge discussion that could be had about, well, all the problems with Lovecraft. But I, mean, I think that's one of the more subtle ones that has permeated not just Lovecraft, but then a lot of the horror fiction that has come about since then, which is the nature of monsters, or particularly of monsters that present with human aspects, in that they are 
they, they're sort of like yeah, the, the people we can hate without guilt. That, I mean, you certainly see this an awful lot in perhaps uh, zombie films and zombie stories that you know, suddenly became very popular 10, 15 years ago. That suddenly it just became like this exploration of, you know, here is this massive, you know, scary others who we can just massacre without consequence and without guilt. But I, that's always been there to some extent in horror fiction that vampires and werewolves, I mean, they're predators, they prey upon us, they're scary, but at the same time, they're also human. Or at least there are elements of them that are human. And just seeing them as things to be massacred, things to be killed, doesn't, I think, necessarily say anything very nice about humans. Lovecraft, I mean, you know, we could just use Lovecraft as maybe kind of a stand-in for most horror <laughs> writers, right? But, but Lovecraft just has this implicit idea that if we found out that there were sentient creatures living in the ocean, that that would strike us as weird in, you know, in a terrifying sense mm -hmm. and actually kind of break our minds. It would drive a not insignificant percentage of us insane and then another not insignificant percentage of us at least to pass out for a little while because we just couldn't even deal with that. And the assumption being that these creatures, these sentient creatures would obviously, of course, be an adversary to us. There would be some kind of competition to us and potentially just mm. outright evil. But I think that's a real pessimistic view of humanity. I don't think that would be my response to, you know, you know, getting on the internet tomorrow morning and just re realizing that or learning that, that someone has discovered sentient, <laughs> sentient civilization at the bottom of the ocean. My response would be, that's very cool. Uh, you know, can, how do we talk to these people? Right. Can we learn their language? Right. This is the thing I would <laughs> want to go work on this. Right. And be really excited about this. Also, you know, do you realize that maybe uh, <laughs> pollution would become, uh, you you know, we would have to change some things about the way we live our lives. But I think this is something that I would greet with excitement and interest, not with horror and certainly not with the murderous impulse. But yet that is what happens in all these horror stories. I'm less optimistic than you. I think if we <laughs> discovered another sentient species on this world, that we would probably drive them to extinction within a couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right there in the sense, of course, that we've we've have been doing a very good job uh, of that with the, with animals that are very nearly sentient anyway. Uh, things mm. you know, like dolphins and, and whales, and then of course other primates and so on. We've we've done a very good job of that, and and I suppose actually that you know even the the very first two episodes of Elder Sign, uh, Brandon and I covered the murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, mm. which very much uh, hinges on the idea that there's actually something kind of terrifying about orangutans because they're a little too much like us uh, for for our own comfort. So yeah, perhaps perhaps you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to be wrong, but <laughs> I don't fear I'm not. <laughs> well, we're not exactly having this conversation at a time. I think where it is easy to be an optimist, but uh, maybe we can revisit this in five years and hope that uh, it's it's a little bit easier to be optimistic <laughs> at that time. Yeah. But yeah, there's. There's another move that Chetwynd Hayes is making here, you know, in addition to uh, flipping it around and making the monsters the protagonist and, and putting them into human society. Uh, Chetwynd mm -hmm. Hayes is also very clearly moving horror out of the 
upper classes. He's moving horror out of Gothic manners and just into regular life, the lives of regular people, kind of a suburban uh, setting here in this story. I mean, basically what I'm getting at is that this could just be a Monty Python sketch. Yes. And I don't think it's any uh, coincidence this was written in the mid 70s because the presentation of the uh, the family of uh, Corolla's family in this and uh, to some extent George's family as well but primarily Corolla's family is a very sort of common one from British media particularly English media at that time uh, this I, I guess I mean, I think you referred to them as middle class before, but I'd say they're probably working class. Um, you know, they, there's the the broad Yorkshire accents that are conveyed through the dialogue, and there's the uh, the, the the sort of setting feels to me a little more working class than middle class, but it it's the the sheer bloody ordinariness of the whole thing the the um you know the the shared meals and the awkward conversation and the family dynamics are just so yeah painfully ordinary and portrayed yes for comic effect because you do have this cultural misunderstanding going on but it feels like something that could come out of you know a british kitchen sink drama of that period just with more teeth I'm so glad you brought up the accents because this is a question that I've actually got for you. <laughs> I want to go back to the the prologue and and maybe I should preface all of this by saying, uh, in, in case we weren't clear earlier, we did talk about this coming from the book, The Monster Club. And The Monster yes. Club is a series of, of short stories, but that they're all connected through um, a frame narrative where uh, we've got a protagonist who goes to literally a monster club. It's just a dinner club for monsters that our protagonist is a regular human who has literally just discovered that there are monsters and he's going to hear stories over his meal and drinks and while well, you know, getting some dinner entertainment. He's going to hear stories about different monsters. And this is the first of them. But in the prologue that leads up to this story, we get you know the frame of it, the way that this is presented by uh, the, the person who ends up uh, narrating the, the, the story is he says... And, and, you know, I guess we should say that the person who's narrating the story actually is the baby who survives here. He Mm. is the the son of the werewolf and the vampire. But he says, my mother was a vampire of a very good family, descended from the famous count, no less. But my father was a werewolf of, frankly, and I'm no snob, of proletarian stock. And uh, something that (laughs) struck me, though, (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is pretty hilarious, right? The count, of course, is is Dracula, right? That's what's going on there. And so saying, you know, we're descended from aristocracy. But something that struck me, but that I may have totally gotten wrong because I'm I'm hearing the accents, you know, as an American. uh, But I actually got the impression that as you're suggesting, Corolla's family is is working class, but that mm. actually, and they're the they're the vampires who are descended from the aristocracy, but they're I think very clearly being presented as working class here. But then George's family, who the narrator describes as proletarian, they struck me as being what in America we would regard as being sort of upper middle class, or, or maybe I don't know, you know, bourgeoisie might be the right way to put that. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to tell. I mean, we don't see much of George's home life here, but they. 
as well as being the class aspect of it, there's also the geographical aspect in that this whole thing takes place around Guildford. And so that's south of London. It's a sort of, I think, as you mentioned earlier, a sort of suburb of London. And it sounds very much like Carolla's family are from the north, from the dialect they use. So there's already you know, a, a bit of a divide that's put in there, whereas George, from the way he speaks, seems to be very much a southerner. And I mean, that's something that's separate from class, but at the same time very often plays into class. And I don't think we necessarily get too many indicators of George's class. But then again, the fact that you know he can afford to leave home and rent this you know rather nice cottage potentially by the the graveyard and so on indicates that perhaps maybe he does come from some degree of money there the the getting of that cottage right his his finding this cottage to rent was something that his father orchestrated right his father had a friend yeah. in the the building line is what uh what Jetwin Hayes writes here and that yeah that just felt very much like that was the you know they're of a different class uh, than the than Corolla's family to me but i was not sure if i was picking that up correctly yeah i i mean obviously none of this stuff is stated outright but like you say there are little indicators here and there and yeah i wonder whether you know, when we're being told this story by their son years later, whether he's attempting to big up his mother's side of the family <laughs> or something like that. But uh, yeah, there certainly seems to be a disconnect in what he says about them and the way they're portrayed in the story. Well, I think there is also just something to the fact, though I may just be betraying my own personal preferences here, but I think that there is, I think if we're ranking the the sophistication and I guess culturedness of monsters. We I think we tend to think of werewolves as well and being kind of like animals, right? Being lowbrow uh, in a sense. But of course, vampires are we, you know something we think of as being aristocratic and, and cultured. You know, they live in castles or at least manors. Uh, they're the people who would go to museums and uh, they collect art and and so on. And I, I like the way that Chetwin Hayes actually flips that around for us here. Yes, though uh, that said, the two of them do end up meeting at this uh, sort of more well, cultural attraction, I suppose. You know, Hampton Court Palace uh, has. Um, well, I, it strikes me as being—I don't know—maybe I'm betraying my prejudices here, but it strikes me as being a very middle-class place to want to visit. <laughs> Yeah, oh, interesting. I, I have actually been there uh, when I lived in the in the UK. When I was living in Leeds, I went down uh, to London and environs to uh, celebrate Halloween. In fact, and went to Hampden Court oh, that day, and then then later that night went and saw the stage play, The uh, Woman in Black. So it was a very awesome. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> very awesome uh, Halloween. But yeah, did not. I yeah. wasn't really quite sure how to think of Hampden Court, sort of in its kind of like cultural place uh, within within the UK. But I thought it was very cool. I mean, I was there, you know, mm. myself as a historian and trained and with a bunch of other historians in training. And I uh, thought it was very cool. I want to go back to talking about the frame a little bit more. I only read this story in the collection so far. And then the the two bits of the, the Monster Club frame, you know, the one before and then the one after it. But I thought this was a very cool idea in its in itself. Was this something that Chetwin Hayes did a, a lot of? Or was this something that was very popular in general in the 1970s to do these frame stories? 
Not that I'm aware of, no. There aren't any other collections of his that I can think of that use the same device. As I mentioned earlier, he had worked on one of the Amicus films, and those were very popular. And those were the same kind of thing of this framing story, and then these individual narratives that just sort of slot into it. And so I assume that he was influenced by that. And of course, that then goes back to things like um, the, the 1945, I want to say, classic Dead of Night. And I suppose even to things like Arthur Macon's Three Imposters, just this idea of you know, this, uh, you know, all these narratives woven together into a, a larger story. Um, but yeah, with Chapman Hayes, I, I, while he hadn't used this kind of structure before, and there isn't really a continuity to a lot of his other work. I mean, there, there are certain repeated storylines and characters through some of his work, but it's not like they all exist within the same world. But there is a feeling of some degree of thematic continuity between this and his earlier stories. You can imagine a lot of the you know, the characters and the monsters and so on from his earlier works appearing within the Monster Club. I really love the the setting of this. I mean, Chetwin Hayes is not the only person to have, as, as you say, ever have you know had this kind of idea of setting a story cycle in a club. It's something I really kind of rue the the absence of. And uh, you know, the, this is definitely something I tend to associate with these sort of Edwardian writers like Mackin and, and Algernon Blackwood as well. Though Stephen King has, uh, I guess, earned the right to be able to do something like this as well because he could just write something and it will be you know be be published. <laughs> and he's done a number of things like this. But I, I wish more writers. We're doing this, but uh, there was something about the way that Chetwin Hayes depicts this in particular that felt to me very influential in what goes on to become urban fantasy. Yes, and I think that's part of what appeals to me about Chetwin Hayes, which is, like you say, he does feel almost like an, a, a proto-urban fantasy writer, in that, like urban fantasy, his stories have the trappings of horror, use monsters from horror, use the window dressing of horror, but very often don't set out to horrify, that they feel more, as I said before, more human. And I think this is something that urban fantasy at its best does very well. Um, I sometimes... You know, it it goes too far and gets rather silly, but you know this you know this idea of sort of exploring how the supernatural would fit into the cracks of our world. And there's a, a throwaway bit in the framing uh, story for the Monster Club where I, I think Aramis the vampire is talking about how on any given bus that you might go on, you might encounter four monsters <laughs> uh, the, you know, who, are, who are just there, just being people. And I just love that idea that there is this entire hidden world of monsters just out of sight. 
And certainly there's a, a way of reading this as a metaphor, of course, right? Where the people here in, in these mm. stories who are depicted as monsters, you know, vampires and werewolves really could be stand-ins for anything that seemed to be outside of the, you know, you know accepted social conventions of, of life. And so I think there's a lot mm. here actually for readers to really grab onto, to, to sympathize with, and, and in some cases, I think even identify with not just the monsters as, as individual characters, but the the way that they have to live in society. Oh yeah, absolutely. That sense of being an outsider, of having to hide who you are. I mean, this was written well, in 1975. So at the time this was coming out, the uh, sex between men would have been legal for seven or eight years in the UK. Uh, so you know, there was a long history before then of gay clubs um, in London, particularly where the clientele would very much have to pretend to be things that they're not and have to keep their true identity secret except when they were amongst other people like them in in clubs. And uh, I'd be stunned if that hadn't influenced the Monster Club to some extent. Yeah, it's hard actually not to see that, particularly in this story, in the werewolf and the vampire, in that the the real villain here never ever stops to think whether or not it's morally good to kill these people and also to try to kill their their child. He just knows that they fit into this category that he's been taught to mm-hmm. think of as being monstrous, or we might even use the word abomination, I suppose, though that's not in the text, and sets about hunting them down and killing them in, in a really gruesome manner. I mean, the, the two paragraphs of description mm-hmm. of this were really, uh, really disturbing to me, and, and, and they're supposed to be. It was very effective. But I think that that giving us this figure as the the villain of this story, I think really goes to that social metaphor. Yes, I I agree wholeheartedly. At the same time, I think, I mean, the Reverend Cole is, is portrayed as being a bit of a wishy-washy character, I think. Um, if anything, I'd say the real villain of the piece is Willie Mitchum. Uh, you know, this kid who has basically egged him on, uh, who has... Yeah, the the kid, the way he's betrayed, seems to be an absolute psychopath. That he is getting off on this blood and destruction. This is his opportunity to murder someone. Yeah, and and I think presented as having uh, gotten this way by reading comic books, which is <laughs> yes. you know in itself fairly funny. And this character clearly, Willie Mitchum, hundred percent shows up in the film The Lost Boys. Right, this is who the Corys are. Oh, these yes. kids who hang out in the comic book shop and know how to deal with vampires. Yes. Oh wow. Yes, I hadn't quite pieced that together, but you are absolutely right. What was it? The Frog Brothers. <laughs> right. Yeah. It just seemed so clear to me. I just, my first thought was, oh, I hope he got royalties for that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's something too, I guess, about the way that they're, they're both treated uh, after, after the fact. And one of the things I really appreciated about this story is that we do get this coda at the end where we, we come out of the story mm-hmm. a little bit and switch perspectives. And we're shown that to the outside world, it just looks like this kid and the priest murdered some people, just murdered this nice young couple yeah. with a new baby. 
uh, you know, unbelievably horrific story. Just um, like how how can you make sense of this? How can you make sense of this happening? And everyone assumes, of course, right, that the kid, uh, you know, Willie Mitchum is is the person who's kind of fallen under the spell of the the priest. I, I guess the adult, right? But. I think you're mm. right in pointing out that, that that the reverse actually is true. And Chetwin Hayes is kind of tongue in cheek in the way that he describes Willie Mitchum being sent to a foster home, uh, where he says that you know he just needed um, structure is not quite the word that he used, but uh, just needed to be in a good home and he would straighten himself <laughs> out is kind of the, the idea more or less. But I think we the readers know that that is not going to do it. That there's something no. much more f- deeply flawed about him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I do like this idea, and I'm sure it's turned up in other places, but this idea that horror films and comics have provided an education to monster hunters. That uh, I, I, I seem to remember this coming up in the Dresden Files as well. The idea that the, there are these secrets that have come out or bled through fiction that the monsters really wish weren't out there in the public domain because now people know what their vulnerabilities are. Right. I love this idea as well. The idea that uh, be- yeah, because we're reading this types of literature, we're actually well educated in how to deal with monsters, and it's become kind of a kind of a problem that you know that all of these horror writers and especially the comic writers are betraying all these sort of uh, uh, you know trade secrets, I guess, of what it is to be a, what it is to be a monster. That's a pretty hilarious touch. Oh yes, yeah. And and it's something I think you're right that we play around with. This is definitely something that I think we come to expect actually now in werewolf movies and vampire movies or you know tv shows i guess mm. but on screen in particular where we all know what the rules are of these creatures zombies actually might be even the better example now and so yes. everyone's got to have a twist on that and so there's often this seemingly obligatory scene right where uh, some character has to think that they know something about how to deal with this try to deal with it you know using a cross or holy water maybe it's silver bullets or whatever you know uh and that that doesn't work right so that we can get the we can get shown as an audience, we can get shown that the rules we're bringing to this story don't count here. I think the example that springs to mind of that is perhaps setting the template for a lot of things that came, but which in turn probably did borrow from Chetwind Hayes, uh, is Fright Night. Because you you have the kid in that who you know goes off to confront his vampire neighbor and goes up and holds a cross up and discovers that he doesn't at least initially have the faith to back that up and the vampire just laughs in his face and crushes the cross and you know that that feeling that yes you know, you, you think you know what the rules are but maybe maybe not quite well, we should talk a little bit since we're we're here, I guess, already. You know, thinking about kids and also thinking about s- stories or you know about horror in particular on screen, because something that I read in the introduction to the Monster Club is that this was a- adapted for film. Yes, but it, it was adapted to be for kids, and that doesn't seem right. <laughs> That's a really. <laughs> a really odd way of looking at it. I actually watched the Monster Club again recently. Well, in fact, last week in preparation for this discussion, because it'd been many years since I'd, I'd watched it. And I mean, this was Roy Board Baker's last film, a legendary director, particularly with Hammer. And uh, had Vincent Price and John Carradine actually playing R. Chetwind Hayes. And um, 
it's I mean it's a cheesy film. The the framing sequences in the Monster Club itself are frankly awful. Um, they've got a lot of uh, <laughs> pop groups at the time or pop artists doing, I, I guess, fairly spirited performances. But they've got these god awful monster masks, which you know they they, I, they just look so cheap and unrealistic. Well, I just I mean, they they look like something that you buy down at your local supermarket the week before Halloween, and th- that's what all the extras are wearing. But then the I mean the individual stories within I mean two out of the three of them I think are actually fairly good and would fit very nicely into the the whole Amicus cycle. This wasn't an Amicus film, but uh, Milton Sabatsky, who who made the film, was behind all the, the sort of great Amicus anthology films. And so it has a very similar kind of feel. And while while it is, you know, that sort of gentle tongue-in-cheek horror that Chetwind Hayes did so well, and while it is you know, a very cheesy and often silly film, I, Chetwind Hayes apparently hated it because he just thought it got too silly. But despite all that, I, I hesitate to call it a children's film. I, I, I don't think I'd show it to a kid. I mean, there, there, there are some fairly, not gruesome bits, but nasty bits in there. Um, particularly in the final story with the ghouls, that I think, yeah, I, I think if you showed that to a young child, they'd probably end up with nightmares. Yeah, and, and potentially turn into Willie Mitchum, right? It sort of struck <laughs> me as kind of ironic, uh, the way this was presented in the introduction. Now, you mentioned, Scott, that you watched this, and I, I only actually just learned about this, you know, in the last few days, uh, you know, reading the introduction to this book, but I also would really love to watch this. Even though I hear you saying it's not very good, I still want to check it out. Was this something you were able to stream, or do we have to track down physical media for this? Uh, no, certainly in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime, so you can stream it from Prime Video. I don't know about elsewhere. Uh, there are also clips from it on YouTube, uh, but mostly the musical uh, numbers, so they're perhaps not the best parts to jump in with. <laughs> I don't know. That might be where I want to start, actually. I'll confess. <laughs> no, well, that's awesome, because that's, that's definitely uh, – you, you have sorted out my uh, my Friday night, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad film, by any means. I think – I mean, I can see why Chetwind Hayes was disappointed with it because it's not the best representation of his work. Um, I mean, the, the first and the third stories, I think, are really quite good. The second one is good fun, but just a bit too silly. Um, the framing sequence, like I say, I mean, the main problem with it is it looks cheap. But on the whole, I think it's a, a thoroughly entertaining little film. It feels very much like a film out of time in that respect. And I think it was a commercial failure, possibly for that reason, that it was presenting a style of horror that was no longer in fashion, which I think takes us full circle back to what we started out with about you know, why Chetwind Hayes is forgotten, in that you know, his, his stuff just isn't really the kinds of things that you know people look for in horror fiction these days, that it does seem perhaps a bit hokey um, or a bit obvious. But um, to me, that will always be part of its charm. 
And I, I think charm is really a great word to use for this story. To me, the, the story was actually quite charming. I really enjoyed it. It, despite the fact that it is quite gruesome in in bits and has some genuine horror in it. And and you know, just to be, be oh, yeah. clear, in case I have not, the horror is us. The horror is the people in this story for sure, and and mm. maybe the society as well. But there's some really unsettling bits here. I think it's actually a pretty serious bit of literature that asks us to take a look at our own world and uh, see if it could be better, right? To see who are we excluding, who are we assuming are not people, or uh, who are we just assuming uh, deserve to be treated as less than people, but who maybe should not be. That's a real serious question to be asking, one we should always be asking. And it's right here in this story. And it's got a bit of, uh, you know, comedy of, of manners here as well that, you know, might not be everybody's taste, but I thought was really well done. And I enjoyed the heck out of mm. this story. Good. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And I do wholeheartedly recommend trying more of Chetwind Hayes' stuff. I, the Monster Club is, I think, a really good book to start with because, apart from anything else, it's one of the few that's actually in print at the moment, thanks to Valancourt. But also, I think it's a good representation of this kind of stuff he did. The other one I'd really recommend, if you can ever get hold of it, is a collection called Tales of Fear and Fantasy, which I think was the first one of his I read, which has got some of his best stories in it. Uh, but yeah, by all means, do start out with the Monster Club. And if you've seen the film and you think, oh, this is a bit cheesy, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the book is rather different. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great place to end this episode, Scott, with a recommendation to, you know, for me, certainly to continue reading this collection and, and some other things we, we might go check out for, for Chet and Win Hayes. So that's going to do it for this episode. But Scott, I, I have to say thank you so much for introducing me to this writer, introducing me to this uh, story collection here and for coming on the show and guest hosting with me today. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute delight and I'm always happy to spread the good word of Chet Win Hayes. Yeah, and if people want to come talk with us about this story, or I suppose also the uh, not very good film adaptation as well, uh, please drop by the <laughs> forums at claytemplemedia.com, come by our subreddit and talk with us about this story. And also, I hope listeners, you'll be sure to check out Scott's podcast. If you're into actual play shows, there's How We Roll and also Ain't Slayed Nobody. And if you want discussion of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and uh, just a really a host of adjacent topics, in including horror films and horror stories, a lot of what we've talked about here today, then please check out The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. It's a really awesome show. It's something I, I look forward to uh, every time it shows up in my, my feed. But Scott, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing? If people want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at S. Dorwood. Uh, alternatively, if you take a look at BlasphemousTomes.com, that is the home of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. And we've got blog articles and film reviews and all sorts of other good stuff and links to all our various projects there. And of course, I'll be sure to have links to all of that in the show notes just to make things easier for people to, to check these things out. And Brandon and I will be back with our next episode, our regularly scheduled episode on June 29th. That's actually going to be uh, about an incredibly moody and incredibly gothic tale by uh, Clark Ashton Smith. It's uh, A Night in Malneant. And then just a few days after that, we'll be airing a bonus series on the William Hope Hodgson novel, The House on the borderland. Very excited for all of that. And so until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>